This is not the media. This is hell. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? My kid got the croup. The croup. Is it the croup or just croup? I think it's, I don't know, but I love when the is put before any uh, disease. I've got the grip. I've got the piles. I've got the croup. What Uh, what is croup? I don't know. I should probably look that up. Something (laughs) something hits harder when it's uh, an old-timey name for a disease, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Uh, didn't you have an old timey disease like a couple years ago? I'm trying to remember. You had something. Well, I had rubella? shingles. Shing- I'd, uh, yeah. What was the other one I had? I remember I had a uh, hand and mouth disease. <laughs> it's from living hand to mouth. I don't know. Or riding a horse. I'm really not too sure what that's from. Today, we are going to learn what it's like to be a comrade, why we should want to be comrades, and why comrade is not as bad a word as it's been made out to be. When we have the return of political philosopher Jody Dean, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Comrade, an essay on p- political belonging. <clears throat> wow, this is so weird. Being up this early and doing a show on a weekday, very odd. If if we truly want the transformative change that we desire, we're going to have to change the way we relate with each other politically. And that means the end of the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism, where the only political action is one done by yourself for yourself. It's time to become comrades. Jody has been on This Is Hell twice in the past. She was on most recently to talk about her preface to the new Pluto Books edition of the Communist Manifesto titled The Manifesto of the Communist Party for Us, an Idea Whose Time Has Come Again. And back in 2016, Jody told us about her then just released work, Crowds and Party, How Do We Move from the Inert Mass to Organized Activists, where Jody talks about and argues for a new communist party. You can find out about all of those interviews and hear all of them by going to our website at thisishell.com. We have a copy of Jody's new book, Comrade, and we will be giving it to the person with the best response to this week's question from hell. Alex will tell us what this week's question from hell is, and he will be posting it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. At the end of this week's show, you can then tune in to this evening's 7 p.m. Chicago time live one-hour show to find out if you've won. Tonight, our guest will be sustainability scholar Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. Want to know what the future holds for us with climate change? Then look at the world's smallest islands, not because they're inherently susceptible to climate change, naturally susceptible, but they are inherently susceptible to outsiders who have completely changed islands, making them incredibly vulnerable to our era's more intense storms, global warming and even sea level rise. We also have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. And for those of you who listened to our first ever weekday morning live stream on Monday, we had some difficulties toward the end of the show and we got cut off from senior associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., Kevin Cashman, who's the co-author of the Jacobin article, U.S. Sanctions Are Designed to Kill, about the impact of U.S. sanctions upon Iran. So following Jody, we'll reconnect with Kevin as we will have a couple questions, including Kevin's own question from hell that he must answer. So stay tuned in for that. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. And man, do people want to impeach 
President Trump. The new allegations are that Trump may have attempted to use public resources in order to influence the 2020 presidential election by seeking dirt on Joe Biden's son, Hunter, for Hunter's dealings in Ukraine. What's Joe Biden's son doing in Ukraine? That's a good question. Well, he used to be serve on the board of the Ukrainian natural gas producer Burisma Holdings until earlier this year. President Trump believes Joe Biden tried to interfere with an investigation into Burisma Holdings for actions it took while Hunter was on the board. Now, before all you MSNBC types start doing victory laps, laps, sorry, before you get to that finish line of I told you so, before you start popping all that champagne you've been saving for when Robert Mueller finally testifies on Russiagate that will definitely lead to Trump's impeachment, take a deep breath and calm down. This has nothing to do with Russiagate. Despite ABC World News reporting last night that after months of resisting impeachment, House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi is moving forward with an impeachment inquiry. Nancy Pelosi has not been resisting impeachment of President Trump four months on charges he tried to interfere with the 2020 election. Those charges are less than a week old. What Pelosi was resisting was impeachment proceedings related to Ru Russiagate, Russiagate, which has nothing at all to do with this new Ukraine scandal, which I refuse to call Ukraine Gate. Damn it. Russiagate distracted MSNBC and CNN for years, forever speculating on what might happen next, confident in their belief that every piece of mounting evidence was the next smoking gun, sensationalizing and exaggerating every tiny bit of minutia and investigation that kept getting more and more confusing with allegations that WikiLeaks were in the pocket of Putin just like Trump, despite WikiLeaks releasing millions of documents embarrassing to Russia and Putin, despite the Trump administration forwarding provocative Republican policies against Russia, including tearing up long-standing treaties that threaten Russian security. All that guessing and scandal-mongering the cable news networks did. Imagine if they'd spent that time and energy on, say, climate change or the war in Iran, or institutional racism and misogyny and patriarchy in the United States, or U.S. drone wars around the world, or the impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and everywhere else the U.S. has sanctions, or U.S. manipulation of Brazilian justice in order to get democracy or democratically elected leaders thrown out of office so U.S. corporations can get access to Brazil's oil or police violence in the U.S., or the concentration camps at the U.S.-Mexico border, or, or a million other far more important and far less speculative stories than Russiagate. What if they put that energy into ending the Electoral College? Before all you MSNBC types start celebrating, remember, you distracted the entire opposition movement and kept it, kept it laser-focused on that the only problem being Trump won and Hillary lost. Now all the local media outlets are parroting what their national news masters reported, stating that despite months of resistance, Pelosi is moving forward with impeachment on Ukraine, an issue that didn't exist months ago. Now they're conflating the two, a fantasy dreamed up by liberals who couldn't deal with losing, and the reality of exactly how stupid and megalomaniacal Trump is by believing Biden would be a challenger in 2020 and that he could use foreign aid to get dirt on Biden. The two have nothing to do with each other. 
And we need to stop this narrative before Thanksgiving rolls around before you definitely, because you definitely do not want to hear from that MSNBC watching aunt or uncle about how right they were when they were not only wrong, but undermining real activism that could actually challenge the destructive policies of the Trump administration, more importantly, the Republican Party in general. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Comrade is not a word you hear much in the U.S., which is too bad because there's no other word quite like it in describing how we relate to one another. Here to tell us what's so great about Comrade and how thinking of each other as comrades can be liberating. Political philosopher Jody Dean returns to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jody. Thanks so much. Jody is professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. You can follow her on Twitter at Jody7768, and you can find her writing at jdeanicite.typepad.com. The book starts with a chapter, and then you go into this at length in uh, the end of the chapter, but it starts with a chapter entitled From Allies to Comrades. Why is it necessary to go from being allies to comrades? What are comrades that allies are not? One of the weird things about the term allies, which is so popular on the left right now, is how it actually you know, has um, a lot of connotations of small sovereign states coming you know, into an agreement with each other to for collective defense, but they're really doing it just for their own interest, right? They're sovereign states trying to secure their own borders via an alliance with other sovereign states. Like the only reason they're allied is out of uh, their own self-interest. And it seems to me that the problem with allies that we see these days is, is, is that it has the exact same form, right? It's separate groups wanting to protect their own interests, separate identity-defined groups, wanting to shore up their own borders, their own boundaries, and, you know, so, and, and get others to help them secure their self-interest. Comrade is a really different kind of relation. What it says is that we're on the same side. We are bound together on the same side, fighting for a common goal, fighting for a common vision, fighting for a common set of of um, fighting for a common horizon. So comrades make people equal and the same, and, and they're the same because they're on the same side. And allies really emphasizes the separateness, the separate identity, the separate interest of the people who have come together. You write that allies are privileged people who want to do something about oppression. Why do you believe allies are privileged people? How do they reveal themselves when they choose to be allies? How do they reveal themselves as privileged people? So this is basically, when I talk about allies as privileged people, what I'm doing is describing the discussion within the general world of allyship, right? Because if you see, if you look online, there are all these different articles where people are saying how to be a good ally, how to practice allyship, what is it to be an ally? There are all these, there's, there's little courses, like courses in teaching people to be good allies. You can, these are distributed on college campuses and among some activist groups. And there's all this instruction. If you want to be an ally, what do you have to do? And what underlies the vision of allyship in these kind of instruction manuals or these instruction articles or websites is the is the supposition that, oh, you want to be an ally? That means that you're a privileged person who's coming in there to try to help out 
say if you're a man wanting to go help out women by being an ally, you're a white person wanting to help out black people by being their ally. So it assumes this kind of separateness. And it really is assuming that the ally who's coming in is someone who's not oppressed, but really um, privileged. And so you get things like instructions like, okay, you want to be an ally. Don't ask oppressed people about their oppression. Go do your homework. Do it on your own. Figure that out. And then you can come in and be an ally. But basically, go work on yourself first. It just throws me for a loop. When I read that in your book, because I, I, as a person who does radio, an interviewer on a show where we strive to learn as much as possible from people far smarter than the people who work on the show, this sounds stupid. I talk to people all the time <laughs> off the air asking for their perspective, still interviewing because I want to learn. Why don't allies want to ask those they are allied with about their experience that the allies have not witnessed or understood? Wouldn't that be enlightening to allies? One would think so. Um, on the other hand, if we read this kind of sympathetically, like it gets, it does get tiring. So, you know, as a, let's say, I'll just speak for a second as a woman. As a woman, if a guy comes up and wants to say something like, well, how can I be, you know, better to women? I just feel like, what kind of moron are you, right? Like, what, <laughs> why are, why, like, don't rape. I mean, this shouldn't be hard, so hard. So there's a way that that instruction comes out of real exhaustion and frustration. And it's important to recognize that. At the same time, it's also a limit in the politics of allyship, because it's not like there's, say, a common set of readings where someone could say, okay, here's what you need to do, because there's a lot of disagreement. But the ally whole ally debate doesn't look at that, or not debate, the whole ally you know, lexicon of instruction of how to be a good one doesn't look at that. It, 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 it just assumes that there's this kind of interior attitude that you can get correctly. But in fact, it's actually impossible because no matter what, you get involved in these kind of cycles as you're not a good enough ally. You know, you're always going to be oppressing. You don't understand. And one of the reasons that that's the case is there's not a supposition to begin with of a shared politics or a shared political line or a shared goal. There's a supposition of primary separateness. And you have to come and help me. Not we're all in this to fight together for a better future. You write that allies don't want to imagine themselves as homophobic, racist, or sexist. Is being an ally an attempt to erase, to free allies of their guilt over homophobia, racism, and sexism? I think that's true, but we could also, again, be more sympathetic to allies and say they really don't want to be bad people, but they've got the kind of wrong idea of, of politics, right? Politics isn't about being a good person. It's about fighting for, you know, I, I would say it's fighting for communism um, or fighting for the struggles of the working class and the oppressed. But within the ally, ally world of suppositions, the idea is that, oh, I need to be a good person. I need to change myself. I need to work on myself first and then I can help out, right? So it's much more of a kind of moralism, a personal self-help guide to feeling better. Oh, and the other thing that makes the allies stuff, in addition to, um, tr you know, these kind of individual suppositions that if I change my attitude, I'm making a massive political intervention. The other thing that comes about this is there's the sense of immediacy, right? Like, oh, I have to be a, a better person right now to make political change. And that's a problem because politics requires building organizations and fighting the long fight. It's not something that happens immediately. But when it's reduced to these kind of attitudes, like, is my attitude correct? 
then it all gets sucked into this kind of world of, of new media capitalist, communicative capitalism immediacy. You write allyship is a matter of the self, of what the self acknowledges, of the individual who stands alone, and of this single individual taking on a struggle that properly belongs to another. It's as if struggles were possessions, artifacts that individuals take on, over, and into themselves, all while being urged to see these acquisitions as something to which they, as the ally, have no right. At the same time, exactly what the struggle is, what the politics is, remains opaque, unstated, and a matter of the individual's feeling attitude or comfort level. Is allyship then about standing up for the marginalized while avoiding any systemic criticism of capitalism? Does it place every event allies stand up for in a vacuum? And what happens when these are treated as singular events and not the symptoms of something larger? Oh, that's that's a, a great question and comment. Um, what you really see is this way where politics is reduced to standing up right like rather than rather than actually organizing and fighting back so you don't so first you don't build anything you just take you just take a kind of moral stand like an attitude it's almost like like a vision of politics reduced to liking something or sharing it or like i'm just i will you know nod my head in understanding when i'm in a public meeting but what you don't see is a sense of okay how are these repeated um, problems uh, connected, what makes them part of the struggle, and what is the actual goal. So you don't get any kind of systemic analysis. Um, and in fact, it, you're almost pushed against providing that because that would be the property or the it would be owned by whatever group is that you are attempting to ally with, rather than it being part of a shared political view that we're, you know, where we're on the same side, we have the shared analysis, and now we're fighting for um, a common vision. You write that if we recognize that the attachment to individual identity is the form of our political incapacity, we can acquire new capacities for action, the collective capacities of those on the same side of a struggle. We can become more than allies who are concerned with defending our own individual identity and lecturing others on what they must do to aid us in this defense. We can become comrades struggling together to change the world. You then mention how you agree with the late Mark Fisher's uh, crucial reminder, Quote, we need to learn or relearn how to build comradeship and solidarity instead of doing Keppel's work for it by condemning and abusing each other. Does allyship then not challenge capitalism, but actually expand it through identity? I think what it does is it prevents us from addressing it. I'm not sure I want to say expand it, except for the fact that anything that fails to um, confront and address and attack capitalism by necessity ends up expanding it. I also want to say like, about uh, Mark Fisher, you know, my um, the very first time I wrote anything about um, comrades or comradeship was on a now defunct website, um, the North Star. And um, Mark had written this really, this piece that became really influential um, on called Exiting the Vampire Castle. And he took, it was about Russell Brand and about the ways that a lot of um, particularly um, feminists in England were attacking Russell Brand's, you know, really strong class conscious message because he used some, um, you know, some gendered terms when he was talking in a colloquial way. And this really, really, um, and Mark took them to task for that. And then he got slaughtered on Twitter. It was awful. And um, this, you know, I don't, I really don't think he ever 
recovered from the kinds of intense attacks from people ostensibly like we should have been on, they should have been on the same side right mark was trying to bring out this important working class perspective and that it was also of course an anti-sexist and anti-racist perspective and people were instead doing picking up doing this vocabulary policing and and it was awful and so the, the first thing I wrote about comrade um, comrades and comradeship was you know in, in solidarity with with mark on this front because the thing about comradeship and also throughout the the if you really look at the history of the communist parties they were always um, committed in um, and they tried they often failed but they were committed to um, a politics that was against bigotry against sexism against racism and they had a different vocabulary for that it'd be against male chauvinism or against white chauvinism as part of the US vocabulary they were against forms of national oppression um, and in trying to work on a broad alliance of oppressed peoples and that has gotten lost and that's what comradeship lets us start to see again is how there's the the different kinds of oppression are like when we struggle against oppression, we're struggling against all of them. You write that in Romance Languages, Comrade first appears in the 16th century to designate one who shares a room with another. Etymologically, Comrade derives from camera, the Latin word for room, chamber, and vault. The technical connotation of vault indexes a generic function, the uh, structure that produces a particular space a space and holds it open. Sharing a room, sharing a space generates a closeness and intensity of feeling and expectation of solidarity that differentiates those on one side from those on the other. Comradeship is a political relation of, of supported cover, and you emphasize the comrade as a generic figure for the political relation between those on the same side of a political struggle. Comrades are those who tie themselves together instrumentally for a common purpose. If we want to win and we have to win, we must act together. Acting together, standing together, what is the impact on one's own individuality when they are a comrade? Um, so look at it, let's think about it like this, like comrades are on the same side and they're looking, they're not looking at each other, right? They're looking outward at the goals that they have. And so when you think about comradeship, then from the perspective of individuality, what you're thinking about is how are you joining with others to pursue the political goal that you all have? Now, that can be a a great individual feeling, but it can also be a really kind of it can also be a kind of crappy individual feeling in that you often have to um Put aside what your immediate individual um, emotional or ego need might be in the interest of the common fight that you're engaged in, right? But but that's why you've engaged in the common fight. That's why you're on the same political side is not for yourself, right? But for the sake of this goal that you have, and right now you collectively. And I think that's one of the things that. Um, 
actually the influence of freaking 40 years of neoliberalism on the left, we've forgotten this, right? The kind of the that we've forgotten the fact that a fight, a political struggle means that you've got to be in a sort of instrumental relations with one another where you all say, okay, we're going to do this for the sake of the fight, right? We're not in this just for it's not you know, it's not like you engage in politics um, for your own ego needs or just for fun or to hang out with your friends. You're doing it because it's a fight that matters. And so you've got to be willing to put aside like what you want that day and for the sake of the fight. So so is that a fulfillment of individuality or is that a repression of individuality? Or maybe the thinking of individuality is the wrong focus. That is a fantastic answer. Jody, this is why I love having you on the show. Uh, you write, comrades are those you can count on. You share enough of a common ideology, enough of a commitment to common principles and goals to do more than one-off actions. Together, you can fight the long fight. But how difficult is it to find that common ground to have those goals that we share in common? Because I've, I've heard people say as strong of words as, you know, there there is no common interest. There is no public interest. So so what is, the, how difficult is it to find those common goals? And what are the common goals we should share? Oh, I, I love that question. I agree that there's not a public interest, right? Particularly in the United States right now, we're in a state of civil war. And um, this civil war um, is in, is like the superficial manifestation of the underlying class war. So if there's not a public interest and the idea of comradeship is in fact not a public notion, it's not an idea of like citizenship or we're all in this. Um, I argue that comrade says anyone can be a comrade but not everyone, right? Like, like um, you know, Nazis are not our comrades. And so we shouldn't ha- think in these liberal bourgeois term- terms of utter inclusion of all different views. No, comradeship is a relation between people on the same political side. Now, how do you find that side? Well, um, you know, for some of us, that means being in a political party, right? We um, join a political party, particularly a, um, a revolutionary party, many of um, most of which are very small, because um, that party we know um, share, has the set of commitments and principles that are the that name our politics. For others of us, we might be, um, say, unaffiliated but have a strong sense of what our politics are. And then we can, and then we need to be able to expect something from people who share our politics, right? It's not just a kind of, oh, you know, in general, we kind of agree. It's like if we have the same politics and we should expect that we're not going to stab each other in the back. We're not going to do kind of public um, eviscerations for minor things like we, that comradeship's a relation of shared expectation of those on the, on the same political side. And those expectations don't extend to everyone, right? Like just because, you know, 5,000 people on, on Facebook doesn't make them your comrades. So how much does social media, how much does the social industry, uh, how much does that undermine comradeship? Um, I, th- I like that question, and um, that's really interesting. I think if we've got to look at it in in a, a double way, I think it do- it can both undermine it and help it. It undermines it to the extent that it creates this illusion, right? Like the illusion of left book that was just. Uh, 
you know, a kind of bizarre set of attacks on where people are just attacking each other and it was totally demoralizing. And then you've got, you know, all sorts of bizarre kinds of Twitter wars where people um, ostensibly you would think should be on the same political side um, are not and engage in really vicious behavior that prevents the development of a really strong, united, forceful, revolutionary left. On the other hand, when um, parties and groups can um, achieve a degree of unity and solidarity and get their um, messages out and start to model a better mode of political unity and comradeship, then it can be a source of strength. But it's not going it, to, we won't go far as a left until we're able to kind of put aside, like, oh, I need to get my hot take in there in this individualistic way and start to see, no, 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 what really matters is the, the pushing the message that we share. Like, for example, I loved what you said in the um, right before that um, I came on. You were saying all this great stuff about what if the mainstream media had been covering all these other things besides um, stupid Russiagate. I mean, that was great. That was a really important statement. And that's what people on the left should be encouraging one another to do is push these other these other um, stories, these other issues that we know are the ones that matter. You write, as comrades, our actions are voluntary, but they are not always of our own choosing. Comrades <laughs> have to be able to count on each other, even when we don't like each other and even when we disagree. How can we disagree? How can we not like each other and still be comrades? So comradeship's not the same thing as friendship, right? I can have friends who are not my comrades and comrades who are not my friends. So for example, if I have a disagreement with someone who's also in, um, you know, who's also in one of my groups, right, who's also a comrade, that doesn't mean I can just like not show up the next day for the action or not do the things that I had committed to in preparation for the action, right? I still have to do it. I still have to go to the meeting, um, you know, I don't know, whatever, write the police, um, write the police, write the press release, make the banners, show up for the events, even when I don't like someone, right? I have to have the discussions that are necessary for getting the job done. And we've gotten to this this kind of strange world of the left where people assume that politics is about being good friends with people and having rewarding personal relationships, rather than recognizing that the rewarding part comes in the fact of the, the shared commitment will get the actions accomplished, right? That's where the feeling of fulfillment comes in. It's like, wow, we worked past this, you know, these, these personal disagreements, like not worked through them. We just worked past them by doing the work that had to be done. And frankly, there's so much work that has to be done, given the climate crisis and the crazy amount of inequality, that we really don't have time for just worrying about these individual kinds of fulfillment. We have to do the work. We are speaking with political philosopher Jody Dean, who is returning to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. You write, we do what needs to be done because we owe it to our comrades. Why do we owe it to our comrades? What do our comrades, uh, even the ones who disagree with us, do for us that leads us to owe them? It's not what they do for us. It's what we all do together for the sake of the pol our political goal. 
right? We, what we, it's not any kind of personal um, um, owing some, something. Yeah, it's not a personal owing of someone something. It's the expectation that we have to have in order to operate as a political organization or a political grouping or a political party. So we've got to fulfill the kind of expectations that, so it's like, we're, like we, we have to be able to expect something from our comrades, right? And that expectation, though, it's not a personal one. It's a collective one. We have to expect that, I don't know, that, let's, say, let's look at it at the same point, that if, if we've agreed at an action that we're all going to um, lie down in the street and if we will resist arrest, we have to expect that that's what everyone will do. Right. We can't it can't be the case that then half the people get up as soon as the police came. Right. Because then it makes the action fall apart. Like we have to be able to expect if, if we all say, OK, we're doing a banner drop and it starts at 8 a.m., that everybody shows up at 8 a.m. Because if they don't, we can't get the action done. So the, the what is owed is an is owed to the collective, to the group, to the, um, you know, let's say the party in order to get the work done. I mean, that, that's the only reason people come together politically is to get the work done. I mean, it's the only reason that matters. Right. So, again, it's not a, it's what we, we have to get away from thinking about politics in these personal ways and think about them as comrades, which means people who are on the same political side. Can people in the U.S. or anywhere simply lead lives as comrades under the current political economic system like we have here in the U.S.? Can we lead a life as a comrade even though we are still living under capitalism? Sure, if you join a a revolutionary communist party. I mean, even a not-so-revolutionary communist party, a socialist party, like in DSA, they say comrades. They understand themselves as comrades. I mean, this what I'm describing and and, and trying to... um, to get people to think about with this book, Comrade, is the difference between political work and you know politics, political struggle, and all these other ways that we are in the world. Like it's not the same. Being a comrade is not the same as being a citizen. It's not the same thing as being a friend. It's not the same thing as being kin with somebody, right? Or being like you know in the same. It's not the same thing as being in the same ethnic group because people in the same ethnic groups disagree politically. It's not the same thing as being neighbors or living in the same location, right? Being comrades is being on the same political side, and so this requires requires a kind of a set of political commitments. Um, like one of the things I, I somewhere early in the book, I use a long quote from Angela Davis's autobiography, where she talks about when she chose to join the Communist Party. And she was just like, you know, tired of one-off actions, tired of there not being enough of a sense of shared commitment and to pursue an ongoing struggle, right? She really saw the need for more organization in her political life. And that's what joining a party did because once you join, right, particularly a, you know, a party in the socialist and communist tradition, you the way the party gets capacity is through the commitments of comrades, right? Through our ability to not just do what we want on a given afternoon, but if we've made a plan that we will fulfill You explain how the comrade also functions as an ego ideal, the perspective that party members and often fellow travelers take toward themselves. This perspective is the effect of belonging on the same side as it works back on those who have committed themselves to common struggle. The comrade is a symbolic as well as an imaginary figure, and it is the symbolic dimension of ego ideal that you focus on in your work. What is the impact of ego on being a comrade? Is our ego in conflict with, at odds with being a comrade? 
So the um, passage that you read it has a lot of kind of psychoanalytic and Lacanian jargon in it, um, where the ego, um, the um, ideal ego that I say that it's a comrade is not, is basically how we imagine ourselves. The ego, as you're describing it, is more like that, like how we imagine ourselves. The, symb um, the um, symbolic or ego ideal version, the symbolic version of the ego, ego is how we imagine other people looking at us or how, like the, it's the set of suppositions that we have of who we're doing it for or who sees us when we do something. So this is why like a group of people together form a kind of ego ideal for the people in that group. Um, you can call it group sh uh, shared expectations, um, that these shared expectations you start to feel even if, um, even if nobody um, says anything about it. Let me give you an example. Like something that I find that's kind of weird is um, when, sometimes now when I talk to different people, like um, particularly when I'm doing um, invited lectures and stuff, is that people who um, might be just sort of good-hearted progressives start wanting to um, talk to me about like the the far left things that they've been doing, um, like just out of the blue, like oh you know I did this or I, I care about you know not I care but here's what I've done with my union or um, here's this or I know about this union thing and it starts and they start to like really wanting to show how how left they are even though like I might have just asked about a movie or something and and what I f start to feel is like oh they see me as um as part of this larger communist ego ideal that they that they are now seeing themselves in that per, from that perspective right they like from the perspective of this this communist party or this idealized or fantasized communist party they think oh i want to measure up to that so it's so again that's another example of the way that um there's this kind of um effect of groups or effect of a shared set of a shared sensibility that we that in Lacanian um, jargon we call the symbolic, and then we talk about as the ego ideal. This can have effects on how people see themselves and how they carry out action. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It also sounds weird. It's, it's like the person is making the consumer choice to be a communist or to be a, a comrade. It just doesn't. It's, it sounds so odd to me that somebody would ask you or like try to impress onto you how lefty they've been acting. That just sounds so weird. You it does go ahead. It does sound weird, but I don't think I, I don't mean it critically. I no, mean no. it kind of, of diagnostically and that it is weird that they would do that. Like, like I don't, I'm not judging them. No, it sounds darling. You know, it's so, it's so sweet of you, you know? You're right, you're right. My thinking about the comrade as a generic figure for those on the same side flows out of my work on communism as the horizon of left politics and my work on the party as the political form necessary for this politics. What happens to left politics when its horizon is not communism? It it completely falls apart and doesn't know what it is. I mean, just to be really, really um, blunt about it, instead you get all sorts of small measures that can never get at the um, structural core of why we are a um, un uh, utterly unequal, oppressed, repressive society that is sending the planet, um, you know, on to basically um, the verge of extinction. Right? You can't if 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 communists is not a person's political horizon, they actually can't address any of the problems that are facing the world right now. 
The right doesn't seem to have any problem with having fascism as their horizon. Why does the left seem to have such a problem with having communism as their horizon? Yeah, because the um, basically, I would say because of systematic seventy years of really systematic anti-communism. Right, this is part. This is a repercussion of class war. It's a repercussion. The United States was, was viciously anti-communist, not just during the McCarthy era, right? But this has become. This was a pinnacle. I mean, not a, 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 a primary principle of U.S. politics um, for um, you know the vast majority of the 20th century. And since the defeat of the Soviet Union, what we've seen throughout um, Eastern or former Eastern Europe is the rise of authoritarian regimes. You've seen, and what weirdly you see um, in these different authoritarian regimes and in um, Brazil and in the United States is people still arguing against communism. You still see a very fierce anti-communism. And I think that it's a fierce anti-communism because they recognize that communism is the horizon of politics, right? Fascism has always been a, a parasitic capitalist response to try to stop um, workers um, from rising up and workers from uniting and from splitting and for splitting the working class and, and around forms of nationalism. So I think that um, the right the right does this because of um, it's the commitment to capitalism, right? And I think we do we do um, best if we start to recognize the right as a capitalist. You write to see our political horizon as communist is to highlight the emancipatory egalitarian struggle of the proletarianized against capitalist exploitation, that is, against the determination of life by market forces, by value, by the division of labor on the basis of sex and race, by imperialism, theorized by Lenin in terms of the dominance of monopoly and finance capital, and by neocolonialism, theorized by 20th century Ghanaian politician and revolutionary Kwame Nkrumah as the last stage of imperialism. If our lives are not to be determined by market forces, value, division of labor, imperialism, and neocolonialism. What would determine our lives as comrades? Um, communism, right? I mean, that's, we have to have a massive um, you know, struggle of the proletarianized against the capitalist system. We have to do that for the sake of, of the climate, for the sake of environmental justice and the ending of this kind of horrible forms of, of environmental oppression and racism that are um, also part of blocking um, action on climate change. I mean, I think that the only way forward is through a um, revolutionary working class struggle where we understand working class in a really um, broad way. And I actually think that we've got like elements of that. I think that that we're starting to see more. We've seen um, exciting strikes now, um, I guess, starting last week and then this week, another new one. We see and I'm, and I'm thinking of the, um, uh, GM workers and then the was it Chicago teachers, um, both of these big strikes. I think we also see um, a new energy um, and intensification in the climate struggle. So I think that um, that we even in amidst of all of the kind of horrors that are the present, or I guess that's why you're called This Is Hell, um, that we also see um, increasing fight back, and that that's really exciting. And the nurses strike as well. Uh, is communism happening? Oh, nurses there? strike, yeah. Is communism then happening because 
a global response is needed to our global challenges like climate change and the impact of globalization and capitalism and nationalism. Just they, they don't offer those global responses, despite what international institutions like the UN may promise. It does does communism is communism happening because it is a global response and liberalism is not a global response? Um, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say, so I would agree with that on international grounds, right, that um, the liberalism that we have is not sufficiently internationalist. What you have instead is um, the only internationalism is the internationalism of capital. And we have um, the the communist um, sensibility or communist aspect of the movement is it's um, is an internationalism, let's just say an internationalism of the people and an internationalism of 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 workers and the oppressed. Um, but I think we can we should also say that part of the um, part of the appeal of of rising of socialism in the U.S. and possibly communism is a different model, a different approach from the state, right? The recognition that the scale of the problems we confront cannot be addressed by small scale, by small solutions, by local solutions, right? I mean, if, if you want to, if we're going to say that we have to keep it in the ground, then we have to nationalize the oil and gas sector. If we want to say we have to um, redo the entire transportation system of the country, that doesn't happen through local solutions. That's a state down, massive, huge infrastructure solution. If we're going to say we have to read, you know, have a brand new agricultural system, even as we break up massive agricultural farms, we have to still do that from the top down. And so there's a way, and this is, this isn't, this part of the, of the, the necessity of a communist approach isn't necessarily accept, accepted by um, everyone on the left, right? There are a lot of people in the climate movement who are interested in local solutions, but the, to actually make a difference, right? You can't just have like, like in Geneva, New York, we can't have a a solution to the oil and gas crisis because we're in town of 12,000. Like locality in this score just makes no sense. The scale of the problem requires enormous scale of to be addressed. You write communism is also the name for the positive alternative to capitalism's permanent and expanding exploitation crisis and immiseration, the name of a system of production based on meeting social needs from each according to ability to each according to need, to paraphrase, paraphrase Marx's famous slogan, in a way that is collectively determined and carried out by the producers. Now, I might be wrong. Actually, I'm betting that I am. But it would seem to me <laughs> that for this to happen, people would have to be good toward one another. How possible is communism if it depends on human beings actually treating each other well? I want, I want to take the um, question in a different way, right? Like, what if we take the question from the standpoint of how do you get enough people to join the fight, right? How do you I mean, because really, honestly, like radical change of a system only requires about 20% of the people, right? So I'm more interested in the revolutionary struggle. I don't, I think that we start to become, I don't know, like defeatist if we posit everybody has to be good for a system to work, right? Instead, what we need to think of from the standpoint of the left is the fight and the struggle and the development of the political will, right? And, the, and then as we, uh, you know, 
I actually do think that you become better as you work in groups. I think that it, because it sort of sucks, because you don't get to do what you want all the time, you actually end up having to be a more decent person. And the um, and doing the, doing the fight, that helps change it. So I think that we need to focus not on some kind of, oh, what's going to happen after the revolution if we haven't even done the strong work to get there. You write about a positive dimension of communism that attends to social relations, to how people treat each other, animals, things, and the world around them. Building communism entails more than resistance and riot. It requires the emancipated egalitarian organization of collective life. How much does that emancipated egalitarian organization of collective life allow for dissent, political dissent? And for that matter, how much do the determinations of the market today, does capitalism allow for political dissent? Yeah, right. That's fair. I mean, how it, it's actually not easy for political sent, dissent to register um, in our capitalist world, right? It, and, and one of the weird things is that in some ways it can be present, but it doesn't register because it gets drowned out by all of the, you know, the stupid commercials and stupid messages that are, you know, that we drown in that are given from large scale corporations. I mean, and and not to mention the kind of the 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 we still have effects of capitalist media monopoly. I, I heard recently that um, was it like ABC News gave, has given Bernie Sanders all of seven minutes um, since his campaign began, which is just insane. Anyway, but um, the other part of your question, though, is around this kind of emancipatory egalitarian dimension of comradeship. And I want to um, specify there that in that part of the book, I'm trying to draw out the utopian dimension of the term comrade that we get um, – really from um, the Bolsheviks, we get, we see Alexandra Kollontai really describing comradeship in these wonderful lyrical ways. We see uh, Maxine Gorky um, describing comradeship as a, wor a word that can change the world. Um, actually, not a Bolshevik, but a good communist. Um, Franz Fanon um, addresses people as comrades when he's trying to inspire them to, um, to change the world and move forward in a radical way. So the term has this emancipate, has this utopian dimension that's really, really crucial to it, right? Because it recognizes that, yes, we are aspiring, we aspire to a free and equal world. We aspire to treat, when we address one another as comrades, we are aspiring to treat one another in an egalitarian way, like, like something that's even more, that's better than respect, right? That's got all the goodies of respect, but, 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 Plus, but more, but like really an egalitarian way. And it all, so we aspire to that. But in real life, of course, you know, we won't live up to it. But we still have this now, this ego ideal of comradeship that lets us know, oh, I didn't treat you the way I should. But that we're comrades means I will try to do better. Right. And you didn't treat treat me the way you should or whatever. But 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 there's the aspirational and utopian dimension of that. And again, that's for the fighters in the struggle. I mean, as this expands, that would be great. But I, I, I don't I'm not going to try to um, give a view that the whole world is a world of comrades. You used a word in your response, and that word is utopian. And yeah. it's a word that is often used in a dismissive way when somebody says, I'd like to have universal health care or free education. Uh, they'll say that's a utopian idea, as if it should be dismissed, as if it's something that is impossible to attain. What, what does it say to you about our politics and our society today when utopian is a word of derision? 
It says that capitalism has tried to squash our dreams and hopes and wants to convince us that this is the best we can do. And that's ridiculous. You write about the concerns that uh, communist philosophers have had in the past about political parties. The rejection of the party as a form for left politics you see as a mistake. Why do so many communist philosophers reject the party as a form of left politics? What do they fear in the party that you do not? So um, there were some real historical reasons for um, European thinkers to um, in the 20th century to want to distance themselves from the some of the communist parties um, in that were ruling or that were you know participating in government that were mass electoral parties. Um, some of them did become overly bureaucratic and controlling and started to lose um, their way. So that's one reason, right? The kind of sense that these parties were were just desiccated bureaucracies. Another reason is that um, for all sorts of complicated historical reasons, there were, um, you know, real um, excesses by ruling communist parties as they tried to build communism under, um, you know, really terrible and inopportune conditions and conditions that will always be kind of inopportune. It will always be hard. And for many people, the um, sacrifices made and inflicted were too great. Other intellectuals today think that the party form just doesn't fit into the kinds of network societies that we have, um, that, you know, we, that the party form corresponded to more of a Fordist form of economy with strong unions, and it doesn't correspond to a society where most people, where there are very few private sector unions, and I'm thinking of the U.S., and, um, you know, people's relation to work is really different from, say, the, the kind of classic industrial model. So those, oh, yeah, you wanted to say something? No, go ahead. Okay, so so those are some of the, the primary um, arguments that the some intellectuals have against the party. And um, my response is, can't we learn from history not to kill our comrades when we disagree? I think that answer's got to be yes. Second, I think that... Um, the, as the party form emerges in the 19th century, it emerges not in a context of Fordist production, but a context of widespread fragmentation. That's where we are, context of wide, widespread fragmentation. So why not rebuild? I mean, the, the party was a form that introduced there to try to bring, um, basically to try to intensify and politicize working, um, working class struggle, to try to give it more of a political form. Um, so I think that the, frag the fragmented conditions that we're in are actually relevant to the present. I also think, finally, we do not have a political form that's capable of taking on capital in the state and winning. That's not the party, right? Instead, what we've had, and without with this left abandonment of the party for like the last 40 years, what we have are kind of movements that ebb and flow and fragmented one-offs. But none of these has been successful in trying, in basically in, well, obviously bringing down capitalism or changing um, or seizing the state or changing the state. Instead, things have gotten substantially worse, more repressive, more um, 
um, um, economically unequal. And now we've got to do something else. And I just want to make sure that everybody understands we are just scratching the surface of even the first chapter in her book. This is an amazing book. We've been speaking with Jody Dean. She is the author of Comrade, an essay on political belonging. I've got a couple more questions for you. You mentioned the famous German jurist Carl Schmitt, a Nazi, famously characterizing liberalism as replacing politics with ethics and economics. It's as if politics can be replaced by some algorithm. What happens when economics and ethics replaces politics? Why can't technocrats keep working and molding that algorithm, constantly adapting it to any given situation to bring about what liberals want, which I assume is freedom, justice and democracy, maybe? So I actually don't assume that liberals want freedom, justice and democracy. I think that liberals want um, private property and social order, and that it is possible for technocrats to help liberals in um, securing private property and social order. Um, and then that lets us know that what we've now occluded or excluded or, or um, erased from our view is um, politics as a fight, political antagonism, the working class. Right. So what happens with this, you know, um, view of liberalism is like ethics and economics is that you don't see class struggle. That's the that's the Schmidtian point is this, um, you know, erasure of the political. And so it can happen, but it's a form of the repression of politics. We have been speaking with political philosopher Jody Dean, who has returned to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Jody has been on This Is Hell twice in the past. She was on most recently to talk about her preface to the new Pluto Books edition of the Communist Manifesto, Tell the Manifesto of the Communist Party for Us, an idea whose time has come. And back in 2016, Jody told us about her then-just-released book, Crowds and Party, How Do We Move from the Inert Mass to Organize Act? activists. You can find both of those interviews at our website, thisishell.com. You can follow Jody on Twitter at Jody7768 and find her writing at jdean, then I-C-I-T-E dot typepad dot com. One last question for you, Jody, and as we do with all of our guests, it's oh, the no. question from hell, the question we hate to oh, ask. No. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Uh, and as me being part of your audience, I think I'm going to personally hate your response because, oh my God, Jody... I think I might might be might be accidentally a comrade. So you have to tell me if I have been acting like a comrade without even intending or to or noticing that I am. While I was reading your book, I suddenly realized that my deeply held belief that the airwaves are the public's and therefore what you do on air should be in the public service, which at times has led us to cover topics that I wasn't all that excited to read or talk about, but we've done it because we believed it is a topic that would be in the public's service. To what extent is acting in the public service and doing something you may not otherwise do, but you do it for the public, to what degree is that being a comrade? And to what degree am I acting as a comrade on this radio show? And if I'm not, that's okay by me. Oh, God. Um... So I, if I really answer, I mean, let me answer first the way I want to, and then I'll answer it the way I should. <laughs> okay. So the way I want to is I think that the way you um, interview me is comradely, 
right? I feel like the way that I don't feel like you ask me um, really uh, horrible gotcha questions that a right-wing person or an anti-communist person would ask. So I feel like the way you interact with me is comradely. When I, every time I see um, things that This Is Hell has covered, I feel like you cover them from the perspective of someone who is on the same, who's on the same side that I am. So it makes me take, feel like you are a comrade because I think of us as on the same side. Um, and I don't see that side then as one that commit that's committed to public service, I see it as a side that is fighting for a particular left politics. Now, you might think that that's in the public service, and I wouldn't want to dis, dis um, you know, to change that or anything. I mean, that's that's your view, but but I would say what makes to me what makes um, you comradely is the left commitment not the public service commitment, because it doesn't seem to me to be a neutral or non-political set of commitments that you have. Wow. That was the most wonderful, thoughtful answer to the question from hell I think I've ever had on the show, Jody. I really appreciate it. This is why I have you on the show all the time. You know what? Here's the, if, I, if I had my way, I would have you on for an interview for each of the other four or five chapters in your book, because it really is fantastic, and this is one of the most important books I've read in a long time. It really has had a huge impact on me and the way I view the world. So I can't thank you enough for being on our show, and I can't thank you enough for your writing. Your book, Comrade, is just fantastic. Oh, thanks. This has been really great. I've enjoyed it so much. So thank you so much. All right. Take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye. Your source. Your source. Man, getting up early on a weekday. Still not quite used to it yet. Your source for anti-social media. This is hell. This week's question from Pal Winner gets the book we were just discussing with Jody Dean, Comrade, and Alex... I believe that you have this week's question from hell, which you're about to post on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Uh, this week's question from hell is why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> I'm going to regret this one. Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? That's this week's question from hell. The winner will get Jody Dean's book, Comrade. Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during tonight's 7 p.m. Chicago time live stream to hear everyone's answer to this week's question from hell and to find out if you have one. This is Hell is brought to you by the amazingly incredible support of all of our subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell patreon subscribers get an additional podcast each and every week with a brand new monologue from me as well as an interview from our archives so we will be doing that tomorrow make sure you tune in uh what else is happening oh yeah Join us for This Is Hell Office Hours tonight and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. This Is Hell Office Hours is our weekly meet and greet, which is more a think and drink. Hang out with us every Wednesday evening, immediately following our live Wednesday evening podcast and stream. Coming up on this week's show, sustainability scholar Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, 
Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. And as always, Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth. You can hear all of that at 7 p.m. Chicago time, time tonight at thisishell.com. Uh, anything else we want to mention, Alex? Oh, yeah. Again, tell people what the question from hell is. Question from Ella is, uh, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Uh, thanks to Kevin Cashman for returning to our show to talk about Iran uh, sanctions that the U.S. has imposed upon Iran. You can find out more about Kevin at Kevin Cashman. I'm sorry, at CashmanK.com. The uh, question from Hell winner will get the book that we featured earlier on this morning's show, and that's the book by political philosopher Jody Dean, who returned to This Is Hell to talk about Comrade and essay on political belonging. All right, so I guess I'll be talking to you this evening at 7 o'clock. This is the weirdest day. I've never done two shows eight hours apart in one day before, so let's see how all this works out. All right, stay beautiful, freaks. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.